1: Barry Eichengreen, the University of California professor at Berkeley and author of The Populist Temptation. It's actually sitting on my bedside table back in New York. It's an absolute must read to understand the seeds of the political movements that are sweeping through the United States and Europe currently. Good morning, Professor. It's great to have you with us on the program. Good morning. Populism in Europe as you point out, has a very, very long history. We've been confronted with it a whole lot more recently. How do you
2: explain what we're seeing in Italy right now? Immigration is really the uh, uh, the, the key unifying fact here, I think. People in, in uh, Europe and Italy are worried about economic insecurity, and they associate that with uh, an influx of foreign workers, and they, they have identity concerns. Immigration raises those as well. So it's not surprising that that has been uh, uh, the flashpoint in uh, Italian and European politics. And movements like Five Star and the, uh, the Northern League have both sought to capitalise on it. Something they can both agree on is to spend more. To borrow your
1: phrase, the populist temptation, um, Professor, it seems the temptation is to borrow more. Can financial markets constrain the ambition of populism in a place like Italy?
2: Well, they did constrain the ambitions in, in a place like Greece uh, in 2015. So I do see a scenario where uh, one member of the coalition, the five-star movement, continues to press for larger bu- budget deficits, but its partner, the League, is more uh, fiscally conservative. There will be a battle within this government as well about how large those budget deficits need to be and whether the markets uh, should be heard or not.
0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, from uh, New York, John Farrow in London. I'm Tom Keenan in New York. And of course, with us, Professor Ike I'm going to speak to Madame Lagarde on Monday in Washington. What should I ask her about the strength of her institution? She's once again come to the rescue and saved Argentina. But what's your major message to Christine Lagarde?
2: The IMF has a a funding problem going forward with uh, some of its resources expiring in 2019, uh, others expiring in 2021. So they will need a commitment from uh, their member governments, including the United States, to renew those resources if they're going to have the firepower um, to deal with not only Argentina, but whatever else comes down the pike. From
0: your reading of history, can President Trump block that funding or diminish that funding and diminish the impact of the IMF? He can, uh, in, in part
2: because the Congress would have to go along with whatever proposal uh, the US Treasury tables for uh, additional funding f- uh, for the IMF. Um, the The fund would then go to other sources It would, would ask China for a bilateral uh, credit line to top up its resources. But the Chinese, I think, would be Uh, reluctant to provide if they don't get additional votes in the institution. So I think there is a real uh, danger of an under-resourced IMF. uh, But the
0: the heart of this, Barry, within all your work, and frankly, the international community, is the word vacuum. And almost on a physics basis, if America, which it's done numerous times before, Steps back from the international scene, a vacuum is created. What's the rate of change of our new Trumpian vacuum right now? Are are we stepping away with greater extent after these UN meetings this week?
2: I don't. I don't think we've um, ever seen a a U.S. retreat from retreat from the international stage of this magnitude in in my lifetime. Uh, mm-hmm. And the question is. Um, Who steps up? The Europeans uh, are are showing signs of doing that by uh, talking to both the Russians and the Chinese about how to do business with Iran, despite uh, uh, the U.S., Reimposition of sanctions. So maybe there is scope for China and Europe to begin to fill that vacuum.
0: Link it in to financial stability and instability. And of course, this is the Green Book, the acclaimed Green Book of the IMF. I think of just as one named Carlo Cottarelli, in his contribution there. Just as one example, Deutsche Bank, hugely struggling as a national iconic institution. How do you work out Our financial system to a greater stability who does that or is it just handled by the ugly Lockean markets the
2: individual markets well it's done done by the national regulators um, meeting together in, in, in places like Basel Switzerland so Uh, The problem, I think, is really whack-a-mole that we had a a banking and shadow banking crisis 10 years ago. We clamped down on the banks. We increased capital and liquidity requirements for the banks. But now we have problems elsewhere. We have highly leveraged private equity funds that were not a problem 10 years ago, but pose financial stability risks now.
0: I mean, and within this, I, I, Whack-A-Mole, is that a P, do you do that in PhD and graduate studies only at Berkeley? No. we do you do that undergraduate, freshman class? Across the board. Across the board. Good, and we did see Whack-A-Mole use at the University of California, as it should be. Within this rush to where we're going next in globaliza- globalization, and as a president with his great dislike of the word globalism, is the simple idea of where we're heading, do we know do we i mean from Stiglitz, globalizing and the discontents do we know where we're heading five and ten years out are we flying blind in our dash to modern globalization
2: we are flying blind but i'm hopeful that um the destination will nonetheless be a, a managed globalization um where We have uh, a safety net for people who are left behind where governments provide the education and training people need in order to move into new sectors and and activities and maybe where we reinvigorate the institutions that we need in order to, to manage trade flows and capital flows.
0: Professor, I can agree with bad news. John has your book by his bedside. I have it on Kindle. Because I can't read the font anymore, my eyes just can't. Could you publish in a John? Don't you think you should publish in a larger you font? You are you
1: age yourself every day I on do, this program. I do. do. You know that.
0: I mean, I mean, that cost Eiken Green one dollar forty-two cents in royalties because my eyes have failed me.
3: So get the audio book.
0: Oh, get the oh, go even further, right? Barry's yeah. nodding. That's a good idea. We should do Eiken Green audio books, Professor Eiken Green. Thank you uh, so much, Barry Eiken Green of Berkeley. A wonderful way to, to begin this last day of uh, international meetings in New York. John, I think we've done a great job today. Our team, I should say, has done a great job of the bigger, broader picture, and that's Barry Ike Green and Christopher Smart just with us, among other wonderful guests. Boy, do we have the right person to talk to about the linkage of markets over into the financial and fiscal stance of Europe.
1: Absolutely, and the fiscal stance of Italy is where the headline is today as the populists get together and agree on a budget, but a bigger one than a lot of people expected before this week. 2.4% of GDP. BTPs go lower. Italian bond yields go higher by 32 basis points on the day so far. Joining us, I'm pleased to say he used to work in the city, Tom, over by uh, Liverpool Street Station at RBS, and now he's too good for that. He uh, works over in Mayfair at Algebris Macro Strategies. He's the head over there. Um, Alberto, always great to catch you with you. Alberto Gallo. Joining us now, what is happening in Italy, Alberto?
4: Hi, John. Uh, I think today what we're seeing is an unexpected, uh, an unexpected reaction. Uh, the market was already bracing for a slightly higher number, uh, but what happened is that the government said they would keep a deficit of two point four percent of GDP for three years, uh, and they've also. Backtracked on some of the reforms, in particular the labour reform that was done by the previous government. So this is a bit um, far-fetched. We have to remember, though, that this budget is a proposal, and that, yep. uh, the deficit last year was 2.3 percent, so pretty close to what they're aiming for uh, for 2019. And um, and therefore, you know, in in the we are talking about fractions of, of, a, of a percent here, uh, but I think the general attitude is a, of one of, a, of, of defiance towards the market and that's why investors are um, you know, reacting uh, with, uh, with a sell today and we see it across uh, both the government bonds and the equities um, in the country. But there is little contagion across Europe uh, unlike in previous, uh, in previous cases.
1: Yeah, and quite clearly the market has drawn a distinction between what has increased BTP supply risk and what would be redenomination risk. And it seems to me that the former is playing out in the market today, Alberto, and not the latter. And it makes me wonder, we're seeing a knee-jerk reaction just to sell European risk today, to sell down European assets. Alberto, for someone that manages money, as you look at things right now and look across the various markets on the Bloomberg screens, where would you be picking up the pieces this morning?
4: John, look, uh, we haven't said this in a while um, but for the first time things are starting to look to look cheap um, you know uh, we have not just in exclude Italy you know look at Spain look at the UK we have you know debt from Barclays which is wider than Ecuador uh, we have um, you know credit spreads in um Spanish companies that have nothing to do with uh, you know with Italy there are exporters which are two times the spread of uh, US companies for the same rating Uh, so Europe has been unloved Uh, there is obviously a lot of political twists and turns uh, a lot of drama but the populism that we have here is not the populism we have in Latin America you know the populism in Europe is very focused on migration yes it may deviate by 0.1 percent on spending, uh, but you know we're not talking about emerging market, uh, you know, far left uh, side populism. So we think sometimes investors don't differentiate enough between, um, you know, the situation in um, uh, in Brazil or in uh, uh, or in Venezuela and and and, well, uh, and, and 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 what happens in in Europe.
0: Alberto, good morning. That's brilliantly said, and, and I understand the idea of the opportunity. But where is the opportunity if something's cheaper than Ecuador, price down, yield sky high, or even in the equity markets, where's the identified Alberto Gallo opportunity?
4: I think the equity market is uh, is a little bit more dependent on flows. And, you know, obviously U.S. investors have been out of the European game for a while. So the equity market has become... A value play is very cheap, but you need money to go in. But for debt, well, you don't need that. You, you just need to wait. Uh, and as long as Europe doesn't uh, have um, you know, the tail risk that, every, that it's priced into the market, and we know that we are, we are pricing a breakup risk again, you get paid very well to wait. You get paid yields of 6 7% in euro, which in dollars are close to 10%. So these yields in the U.S. market, you only get for... Now, for triple C companies, which are uh, you know very right. levered and 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 were almost close okay. to default two two years ago.
0: How long do I have to wait for Christmas?
4: It's going to be you know. I'm not saying volatility won't stay here. Uh, the political game in uh, yeah. Italy with uh, the Five Star Northern League is going to remain volatile. The Brexit. Um, yeah. the game is going to remain volatile so we focus on bonds that have two three four years maturity right. so that we focus on the on the john, credit risk of the single companies
0: john did you see how my light american humor went over like a you know well balloon, i lived i live this
1: on a daily basis lead, lead balloon, alberto's, Alberto not, just, alberto's not familiarized himself Al- with that just
0: completely missed that that's okay
1: Alberto, last year you had a great year managing European credit with some decent returns. Um, It was tough and you did well. This year has been slightly more difficult, Alberto, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, how difficult it is to make returns, generate returns, total returns in Europe right now when the ECB is pulling back and they've distorted the credit market so much.
4: There is a part of the debt market, the investment-grade debt market, which became really. Uh, tight in yield because of ECB purchases. I mean, we're focusing on companies that have uh, slightly lower rating that, or banks that were not bought by the ECB, but the ECB cannot buy banks because uh, they regulate banks. And um, we think that there is a very good Yield at the moment, obviously the mark to market has been volatile there's been you know noisy headlines from southern Europe from brexit, and investors have gone away. Uh, we have reduced our um, we've freed up some dry powder in in the first quarter as we saw the market was turning we're now we're now looking for opportunities and, and adding uh, and we think that uh, you know we, we're not taking a ten year view here we don't know what will happen to Italy on a 10-year view, uh, or Spain or the UK. But if you are confident about Europe not uh, breaking in the next two or three years, then you get right. paid very well. You get paid between 7 and 10% in, in dollar equivalent.
0: Alberto Gallo, thank you so much for this briefing this morning. He's with Algebras.com. Now, the most important interview of the day, without question, on governance, on board management, and of course, that means on the latest story of Tesla. Right now, $270 per share is some form of indication down from a previous 307. John Coffey, across the Bloomberg, we see hundreds and hundreds of headlines on a given story. And about an hour ago, Professor Coffey, we saw a headline that said Tesla shares have a $130, quote, Musk premium, unquote, that may go away. This, according to Barclays Securities Analysis. John Coffey of Columbia, how does a board react to a headline of their CEO and founder like that, that Tesla shares say have $130 Musk premium? What should a board do?
3: Well, I think they have to react and they have to get Mr. Musk to settle. The SEC doesn't normally seek a bar order which would prohibit a corporate executive from serving as a director or officer of a public company. But they may be doing it here because he has refused to settle in their earlier negotiations. Most corporate executives will settle quickly with the SEC because the dollars involved aren't large. But Mr. Musk is a fiercely independent and a maverick, and he isn't willing to settle even though he does not have a legal leg to stand on with respect to the sec's complaint that he said he had funding secured when he certainly did not now the board has to recognize that the market is going to bounce around because it cannot yet evaluate how serious the sec is about a bar order and how serious mr musk is about not settling uh, but not settling will make this prospect loom larger and larger if the SEC could seek to get the judge to grant a bar order. I'm not sure the judge will, but it's going to be the biggest risk the company faces.
0: Do the members of the board have risk or liability if they make incorrect decisions here?
3: Well, they can ask him to settle, but they really can't force him to settle. The company has not been sued. The SEC didn't feel the company did anything wrong. So I don't know that they have great liability where they have not been sued and where they can ask him, but they can't force him to settle.
1: Professor, there's enough cause for concern. In the suit, I'm just reading through it. Um, the SEC alleging that he got to the price by adding 20% to the uh, where the stock was trading. It got to 4.19 and he rounded up to 4.20 to impress his girlfriend because he thought she'd find it funny. Um, professor, surely that's enough reason for the board to sit here and say, our CEO needs some assistance. Um, could this be a positive catalyst for change?
3: Well, I think the board does need to sit down with him and tell him to be mature. It's not going to cost him anything, and he is jeopardizing the company's future. And I think the board, frankly, is not a strong board. This is a board of old friends, old retainers, and sycophants, with maybe yeah. Mr. Murdoch being the only person who's noteworthy on it. And so the board has to get together and recognize they have to do something, which they haven't done in the past.
1: Professor, how much and to what extent does this impair the company, operationally speaking, to have this hanging over the, uh, the company at the moment and the CEO, Elon Musk?
3: Well, I think they have to worry that, first of all, it's going to divert his time, and the company needs 110% of his time because they haven't yet successfully sustained the gold for output per month that he has been promising and which he has said is a key to profitability. And now you add litigation, which diverts a good deal of his time, uh, and you add the risk that there's no one in-house to replace him. So I think the earlier he can resolve this by... Giving up his pride to a degree and recognizing that he can reach a fairly cheap settlement. There aren't any real damages here that the SEC is seeking.
0: Well, let's leave it there. Professor Coffey, thank you so much for your time this morning with Bloomberg Surveillance on television and on radio. John Coffey of Columbia Law on governance this morning. Right now, as we really try on this Friday with a huge news flow to gain perspective, Elaine Kamark joins us. She's with Brookings uh, and author of an incisive book on president failure and successes. It's it's a extremely entertaining uh, read, Why Presidents Fail and How They Can Succeed Again, uh, about the resiliency of the I- executive institution. How's our legislative institution doing, Elaine? It's been uh, an eventful Two or three days of always political posturing, and many would say on both sides of this Kavanaugh debate, some substance as well. Give us your report card on the Judiciary Committee in America's legislative process.
5: Well, I, I don't. I think the Judiciary Committee gets probably about a C or a D. I mean, on the one hand, you got to give them credit for the fact that this was a very impossible situation. On the other hand, that both Democrats and Republicans failed to handle this as they should have. Um, you know, the Democrats should have made this available earlier. They should have said to, to um, Dr. Ford, look, there's no way we can just get this into the into play without you coming out. You must reveal yourself. Otherwise, people can't judge this. So that was somebody should have leveled with her. I mean, it's not her fault. She's not sophisticated in in these things. But, you know, it was clear that this was not going to be meaningful unless she came forward. And they dilly-dallied way too long on that. On the other hand, the Republicans have First of all, no women on the Judiciary Committee. Um, That's a problem. So they had to hire a woman to speak for them, and then they quickly abandoned her um, midway through (laughs) through the day. Let me interrupt. Let 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 her talk. Let
0: let me interrupt, because that's right where I wanted to go. Ronald Klein folks. Whatever your politics is a really bright guy. He worked for President Obama. I think we can say that Ron Klein has an affinity to the Democratic Party. And he came out in the Washington Post, uh, Dr. Kamark today and said Ron Klain was wrong in that Rachel Mitchell was a disaster. Discuss further what a Democrat like Ron Klein says. He was supporting Republicans and having Ms. Mitchell do her questioning and boy, did it go down in flames.
5: Yeah. I mean, Ron is is a friend of mine and I completely agree with him. And I think most people agree that this, this was not a good move. And not only was it not a good move because she, she was accustomed to a courtroom setting and the Senate Judiciary Committee is not exactly a courtroom. Thank you. Okay. And so she and the The senators clearly grew very, very impatient with her, and so it was kind of a double whammy. A, they were so insecure about speaking for themselves that they had to hire themselves a woman, and then very publicly they sort of fired the woman. So it was, you know, they really didn't get any, they, they, they really got nothing out of this adventure.
0: Uh, Dr. Kamark, I've only got like 90 seconds left and I don't want to get into, you know, the AM talk show, cable news, back and forth thon here. Who were the senators speaking to yesterday? If, you know, I listened and Senator to Senator, I couldn't, I had to first figure out who they were talking to. Who were they talking to yesterday?
5: Uh, The Republican senators were talking to their base, no doubt about it. Democrat senators, they weren't? No, Democratic senators were talking to a wider electorate, particularly electorate of potential women, Republican women, who are the potential swing voters in just two months. That's who they were talking to. And it was There were two yeah. very different conversations going on there. The Democrats trying to yeah. expand their pool of voters and the Republicans trying to rev up their base. Well, th- uh, so th- that's why you saw such different approaches.
0: Elaine Kamark, thank you so much. She's with Brookings and it's a twisted book. I really can't say enough about why presidents fail and how they can succeed again. It is not the normal path through the executive branch and it is informative and illuminating uh, as well. John, why presidents fail and how they can succeed again. It's an interesting book. Last I met Jeff Flake, folks, uh, he was essentially on a national basis, unknown as a congressman from Arizona. And we spoke about his Mormon faith, his family as a heritage of Northern Arizona, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, like no one else. His great great grandfather was truly one of the pioneers of the Mormon church, William J. Flake. And he has just said he will vote to confirm Mr. Kavanaugh. Shannon Pettypiece knows the calculus of all this the Western calculus, the Arizona calculus. And Shannon, from view at the White House, the Washington calculus as well. Were you surprised, Shannon Pettypiece, to see Mr. Flake uh, show his support for Judge Kavanaugh?
6: I was not surprised. He, I felt, tipped his hand a little bit this way yesterday. He um, made some remarks at the end of the Kavanaugh hearing saying um, that, you know, we are uh, 21 senators on this committee. We are humans. Uh, you know, we're mortals trying to make a decision that is very complex. Uh, there will be doubt. Uh, there will never be pure certainty. And I mm-hmm. felt like it was sort of paving the way for him to say, well, I might have my doubts, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to to, you know, to vote for Kavanaugh anyway. Um, Also, I I mean, you mentioned very well his um, Mormon faith. He is a true conservative. Uh, Kavanaugh is a true conservative. Uh, You know, whatever uh, questions they might have about Kavanaugh's character, even now or as a young Mm -hmm. man, they are fundamentally in line with his beliefs.
0: And I bring it up, Shannon, as a Western conservatism maybe versus what the media in the East sees. Shannon, you've been a student of this for so long. With that headline, what changes right now with in that judiciary committee hearing
6: Right. Well, so now, uh, I mean, I, and and I think it does seem likely that this gets out of the that this gets out of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, but that's the first hurdle. Uh, so now I think the big focus is on what happens um when the full Senate votes. Uh, there's this 51-49 split with the Vice President as a tiebreaker. Uh, so they can only lose two Republican votes. So the two Republicans remaining, um, as in a flashback to um this Obamacare debate, is Susan. Collins and Lisa Murkowski, so all eyes turn to them now. Um, also, um, Mansion from West Virginia has has um, indicated you know he's on the fence about this. So even if the two of them uh, part off, uh, you know Mansion could um, from you know the Democratic senator from West Virginia could vote um, for Kavanaugh and, and shift off that balance too. The four of these senators met last night and didn't come to any conclusion. But these uh, Flake, Collins, Murkowski, and Mansion. Uh, sort of had their own undecided conference, and there was a thinking at one point that, that they might all sort of go in together as a pack, you know, uh, all for one and one for all. Um, Flake's now broken off of that, so we could see the other ones come into line quite soon. And the White House, they, they've been feeling very confident since last night that the Republicans were closing ranks around Kavanaugh uh, and going to be move forward in a unified uh, fashion by the time that Kavanaugh hearing ended yesterday.
2: Shannon, uh, just to go back to Senator Flake for a moment, in March of 2016, he said that Judge Merrick Garland, who was President Barack Obama's nominee for the Supreme Court, should not be confirmed unless Hillary Clinton wins, or won, in the past tense, won the 2016 presidential election.
6: And... That's been this ultimate irony of all this is the Merrick Garland nomination was held up for, I think it was 200-something days. Uh, that seat was left open, and yet the Republicans have been... Um, Protesting the the delay of a few days of a vote in order to have this hearing. Uh, they've they've you know raised such outrage about uh, the timing of this having to be pushed back when that Supreme Court seat was held open uh, for an enormous amount of time. Uh, and when we saw Lindsey Graham make this very impassioned uh, speech yesterday uh, before the committee, one of the things he said is that, you know, he knows Democrats want to, you know, uh, spike this nomination and keep the seat open until 2020. To see if they can get a Democrat in the White House, so the Republicans have that feeling too—that this is all an attempt right. by Democrats to spike this nomination, so they won't have enough time to get a new nominee named, and then the Democrats hope they can take the Pim, Senate and eventually the White
0: House. I want to interrupt because it's an extraordinary image, uh, Shannon, to see on the other networks. Of course, everybody in our studios, and we've got like 10, 15 screens up here, and Pim, you know, they're all covering it, but CNN's got their foot in the elevator door is Senator flank is trying to get down to the judiciary. I would suggest Shannon pettypiece would have been more polite than that and not stuck her foot in the elevator door. He's trying to get the door shut now. And no security coming to his room. There we go. Put a, put a oh, really? pen.
2: Put a big pen in. Shannon's the slot done this on the not before. Very confident in elevator
6: sensors, so Sh- yeah, I don't have a lot of trust there in elevator goes. sensor industry.
0: <laughs> I can tell you, Shannon, that the senator from Arizona is on his way down uh, yeah. to the committee right now.
2: pin Well, no, Shannon, the reason I asked uh, or asked the question having to do with Senator Flake and, and Merrick Garland is in watching all of this, and not to diminish any of the testimony. Is this just pure politics that the Democrats experienced what they did with Merrick Garland and now they're trying to do the same thing with Brett Kavanaugh in any way, shape or form?
6: Well, I don't think I mean, I don't think what their protestations to Kavanaugh are just because of what happened to Merrick Garland, because uh, Neil Gorsuch. Um, went through pretty right. smoothly. It was 60 something days. Uh, he went through. There was a, a little bit of controversy that the Democrats pulled out at the end, but um, nothing that stopped the nomination. Um, they obviously um, you know were not aligned ideologically with Gorsuch but uh, he made through and Kavanaugh was really <clears throat> marching toward a very smooth confirmation. I yeah. mean it was yeah. uh, it, I mean it, there was no drama until this you know revelation was leaked to the press and then eventually was made public. Right. So, I mean, I know you know the the Democrats have obviously, from the beginning of Kavanaugh, really right. wanted to fight, really wanted to stop this nomination, and but it didn't look like they would be able point. to until the very last revelation. And, Shannon, I know
0: that Rich Truman says that uh, we believe in the reporting that uh, Mr. Flake at the elevator was held up by a protester oh, and okay not the press. Shannon Pennypiece, our White House correspondent,